So here's where we want to go today to return back to the word. Second Kings, if you would. Chapter 13, picking it up in 20 for just a retag. There are some important things that relate to principles that also will be conclusive to where we will be, which is 25. It kind of ends, if you would, our chapter in, I think, an appreciable way, but also in a way that should be highly encouraging for us. If you've been discouraged this week, if things have been, if you would, a little bit confusing with what God is doing, this may help. It may give you an opportunity to breathe deeply, to be able to shake the cobwebs out of your mind and to have a grip on the word. That's where I'm seeing this is going right now. And so the title right now does have a reflection on where we were at. With Elisha, his tenure on earth is over. But before he goes, he is permitted to give a prophecy. It is a dramatic prophecy. It is intended to help a distressed king who also we saw had a sentiment towards this prophet. He was not a perfect king. Many things completely contradictory, both in his nature and also his accomplishments. There are people, much like this king, who have found themselves positionally at failure. But it doesn't mean that they are not of sentiment touched with regard to the things of God or towards the people of God. And we saw that when this king came running, obviously having heard of Elisha's decline and ultimately demise, and we were fascinated to hear a quote that mimicked or impersonated the very words that Elisha had used when Elijah was being taken from him. He saw what, in fact, he had been informed about, and it touched him in such a way where he just gave this heartfelt declaration, the beholding of his eyes, the revelation of what he had believed with regard to what Elijah told him he would see. And if he saw it, then the very thing that he had asked for, which was a double portion, which Elijah said, that's a hard thing you ask, but nevertheless, if you're here, when what I've said comes to pass, that's what you get, a double blessing. We've talked about that before. But the very same utterance is being used by this king who won't go down in the annals of history as a great king. What he will be noted for is that he got some things right. And in this, it was an appeal to Elisha. He humbled himself. We have those in government today over us that have actually been completely contrary to the ways and means of God. They have been blasphemous towards him. They have not sought his will in the decisions that need to be made to protect a citizenry 
that from its very beginning, its inception, was noted as that which constrained itself under Judeo-Christian ethics. Those have eroded. They've been expunged. They've been ruled against by a judiciary that is to serve the Lord as the great judge. They have been, if you would, detoured around by clever legislation. Sometimes it has been simply, and probably now more often than not, just overt disrespect and disallowance of God to have anything to do with this country, with the family, with individuals. So we see the consequence of that because what Israel knew is what we, in a shorter time, are now seeing. And it's really distressing, isn't it? Have you found yourself kind of like, wow, do we ever go back to the 80s? I mean, is there going to be disco balls and dance floors again? Well, the 80s had its own problems. So did the 90s. The 2000s haven't been all that well in similitude. And so one of the things that we know is that God is still showing us that both he is in charge, he's given us promises that he does not want us to let go of, and he wants a tenacity from us in which that which he has promised, we being in possession of it, will be the beneficiaries when it comes, and it's going to come. Reviewing right now, and I'm going to take you to verse 20. When Elisha, or then Elisha, died, and they buried him, and the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year, so his death came prior to the spring of the year, but there's now a raid that has taken place, marauders. They are those who are enemies, and it was so as they were burying a man, just distinguishes him as a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So when we look in the Old Testament, there are pictures that we get that match up with principles that we need to review. The bottom line is, is this man, whomever he was, was a dead man. He was a dead man that needed to be brought into ultimately subjection to the earth. And the place that those who would be known as his comrades or friends, they probably had options. I wonder, though, if in their heart and mind, perhaps having known the life of Elisha, the double portion miracles that he had been given to make a difference in his time and among the people and throughout that nation and even to be feared by the enemies. I wonder if they, this is Elisha's grave. Our dead friend must be brought before someone who at least lived righteously 
and has been known by all of us as great. Was there a fear of desecration of a tomb that held a righteous man? Doesn't seem to show that. A lot of people wouldn't have endeavored to at all break what might have been a moral code. But this is the picture that's being given. We, much like this person, have found ourselves having to dispose of, make a place for those who have been dead in sin and trespass. God doesn't see a difference in the two. Dead in sin and trespass has the same effect. It ultimately leads to a place in which the earth will take it or heaven gets to have it. And the decision is made by one person only, and that's the person who recognizes that they are dead in sin and trespass. You may say, well, this guy didn't have a chance to recognize that. We don't know. He died. Had he heard a command from Elijah earlier on, Elisha presently, who now was older, or was he, in which he didn't per se want that to be something he would experience, but it happened. And what we see is that he was brought to a place in which as he was put into that tomb of Elisha, there was a resuscitation or what we would call a regeneration. And it's supposed to say something to us that you never know who it is that you have hands on in which you put them into the greater hands, the greater place of God. Jesus occupied a tomb. Elisha, remember, is somewhat of an Old Testament picture because of how many miracles he performed. His nature was of great compassion. His diplomacy worked between both the innocent as well as the guilty. He was an amazing statesman. And so he, in a life that would be terminated, it's very classically linked to Jesus, whose life was terminated. A great statesman. He was the word of God. He was the embodiment of God in human form. And he was one in which even the law, Rome, as an enemy of the Jewish state, Pilate would be able to say, I find nothing in this man worthy of a sentence of death. He's innocent. Nothing that could be of guilt. And so I want to take you to a passage really quick that I think plays in with this quite well. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And it's a picture, I think, that points out what happened with this man who would be revived. And I wonder if in his revival there were some changes made in the lives of his friends there was an outcome of evangelism that happened perhaps even within the ranks of the marauders. It's interesting what regeneration does when all of a sudden 
you were once seen as dead in sin and trespass, and all of a sudden you're made alive, inarguably, irrefutably alive, like you guys are today. And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, perhaps the picture of the marauders, the raiders who were coming to steal life and the possessions of those who owned it. He still does. That's his intent. It says, among whom also we were once conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We were in the very same spot that we at times are able to see. They're dead in sin and trespass. God says, so were you. Before by your lips you confessed me as Savior, you were in the same position. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is showing that, that even perhaps with your best intention, and maybe perhaps as impressed as you were or others as well may have been in what you made as a decision, God's saying, actually, it's me. I was at work in your life. I'm the one that brought you in your dead and trespass ways, sin having its way with you, the less that were causing there to be severance of fellowship with me, I took care of all of that by delivering you to my son who took a spot in the grave that you no longer now need to be afraid of. It's no longer a part of your future. Heaven is a part of your future. I love the picture that is brought to us in this. I'll have you also move to Romans 6. And so you'll flip back a little ways. And in chapter 6, I'm going to direct your eyes to verse 6. And so hear what this picture says. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. In essence, that picture says this man, just a man, brought to the grave, what grave? Elisha's grave, as dead, he's going to be made alive. Because the picture here is that he's freed from sin. In his death, he's freed from sin. It's because of the death of Christ in which we all have been freed of sin. We live a life, but not a life that we live in the flesh. We live this life in the spirit. We walk 
according to the spirit, not according to the lusts of our former disposition. Does it come up every now and then and whisper tauntingly the life that we once had, the things that we once did? Are there opportunities in which we can, in our flesh, be seduced to choose contrary to the decision that we made to follow the Lord? Of course. That happens to be one of the things in which we have been given the Spirit of God, which empowers us not to be weakened by the deeds of the flesh or even the persuasion of the enemy. But it's always contingent on the choice that we make in the time and in that instant that we must choose. But verse 6 again on this, this old man has been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And notice verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That belief's important. If we died with him, then we have a belief that now says we shall live with him, meaning that death, eminent, when? Don't know. It's just going to come to all of us unless he comes before that and takes us up with him. It is something we do not need to fear because it doesn't mean anything to these bodies which are now eternal, committed to the Lord. It doesn't. Oh, the fashion by which demise comes, that has options. Sometimes we get our pick. Sometimes we have no pick. But the bottom line is it has no bearing on whom you will be with and where you are going in faith. It's actually a beautiful promise. In other words, that belief and that hope takes the sting of death out of our minds. We don't have to worry about it at all. Sometimes actually the things that we experience on earth and just the minor things that we suffer from, they're very painful. We break a bone. It takes a while to heal. The break is phenomenally ferociously at times painful. I broke my foot with a slight fracture in basketball. And it was, in my years, the most, one of the most difficult body pains I'd been through. I've been through some. But just the agony of the break. I don't have to fear, though, what ultimately, in my demise whatever that may be, where I'm going. I'm going where he went before me. And he sealed that because in his tomb, he rested for three days and he came out of that tomb. And he guaranteed in that action, which he even prophesied, I would also, in faith, be given a provision to be with him. It's a great picture here. But the other thing, too, is we need to move along, and I'm going to do that, is to see what does it mean then when we're in this time of both anticipating the Lord's return, working our best in the tenure that we have, and clinging to promises that he's given to us, but it just doesn't seem like they've come to pass. In fact, some of us are saying, just pass me by then. Who cares? Who wants it? I've learned to live without it, doing okay. 
no problem with you, God, but, but I just don't care anymore. And one of the things we need to understand is God wants us to care about his word. See, that's a part of our living testimony is that rather than becoming indifferent and careless, we want to be able to say, I believed in God, though my body was dead. Abraham had to come to terms with the fact because the scriptures tell us his body was as good as dead. And though he believed God and what God had promised him, he was able to perform. What God had promised him, God was able to perform. And so that's one of the things we do with the promises. Now, Elisha didn't come back to life. It says that his life was manifested into this other being that was tossed into his grave. The grave wasn't meant at this time for that man, nor was it meant to hold Elisha. He no longer is there either. The Old Testament saints that waited, looked forward to the redemption that God would provide for himself a sacrifice. They lived in faith. And so when Jesus died, Ephesians tells us, was it not he who died also, he who descended into the lower portions of the earth and brought forth from captivity those held captive? And they rose with him. It's an amazing thing. Those were the Old Testament saints. But Paul would address even to the church, to be absent from this body is to be present from the Lord. I don't to be present with the Lord. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I'm always quoting Rivs, one billionth of a second. I don't think I have to worry about it. I may want my estate settled here on earth, but my estate is being kept for me in heaven, for you too. And so returning to 2 Kings, this is an important principle anchored in Ephesians as well anchored in Romans. And we'll come back and do a short tag once we move through this episode. He revived and stood on his feet. That's a great word for us today. We need to have revival and stand on our feet. I stand on my feet rather at length and at times in doing it in my thin leather shoes, I'm in pain as I'm talking to you. I'm going, why didn't I wear my tennis shoes? They know I can wear tennis shoes and I'm able to come to church and leave church. God hasn't judged me for wearing tennis shoes. I don't have an answer for you except I'm in pain as I'm talking with you. You don't have to worry about it. It's just a good thing to understand. Sometimes life pains us. And we still have to do what it is that God's called us to do. And in that, and that's something that's encouraging, the Lord brings revival to us. Our car was dead in sin and trespass today. <laughs> it was our sin, our trespass. Somehow we left the ignition on, Zach's van didn't work. The next thing I know, revival breaks out. Two first responders race up the hill, sleeves rolled up. One of them, a young maiden, handled a battery like a cue ball. How'd you pick that up? At any rate, uh, but we were rescued. <laughs> I will leave all of this the mystery because God's the one that arranged that. And so we got here by, if you would, a revival. Somebody that cared enough about 
our predicament that they said, we will help you. That's really the way that God works. In the moment of desperation, being stranded and dead, which it was, we had to come up with another plan. The plan was that God would come to us, and he did. Therefore, when we look back at this, this revival happened. This man stood on his feet. We need to, as a church, be those who say, revive me, Lord. Revive me based on the work that we know is true. Jesus went to the cross. He moved into the tomb as he said he would. He was not in any form of decease, meaning there was no decay that came upon him. He was not like Lazarus. He was kept perfectly until the Spirit of God came back upon him and he came out of the tomb. He didn't have to even lift a finger. He just walked out. His revival for eternity preceded our revival to eternity, guaranteed. But in the meantime, to finish the stuff that God has asked us to do, we have to be those who say, okay, I know the way this works. In my most desperate time, I need to be desperate enough to approach God with my needs or to let those who are able to help me in my time of need do what it is that God has impressed them to do. And so he revives. Verse 22, a lot of names. I'm going to try to cut to the chase quickly. Hiziel, king of Syria, you'll remember that when Joash came weeping, Elisha told him what he would do. He would shoot an arrow. His hand was on the same bow that Joash had. And the next command was, you need to smack this set of arrows that remain on the floor. The reason for that is that Elisha said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at, it says, Aphek, and it says this, till you have destroyed them. You see, in order for there to be a standing of victory, you have to have a tenacity that says, once, twice, thrice, there is something that I am obligated to see getting done. And that's why even in the title there, it's that the promise that ultimately was forged from Elisha's lips to this man who didn't deserve to hear counsel, final counsel, he stopped at three, but God's promise didn't. That's important as well to know. Sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes we lack enthusiasm because what it says is that had he gone four, five, six, or until those arrows were thrashed and pulverized, it would have meant for him complete victory, routing of Syria. And that wouldn't happen. But it didn't stop God from honoring the promise that three times they would have victory. And we can see that as we move along through these characters, because here's what you need to understand. In this next verse identifies the reasons that you can count on God. And it's not how impressive you are. It's how impressionable you have been in your history with him that you can say once again, as this says, 
But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. They deserved not mercy, but they deserved judgment. And what we see as the preamble is the attributes of God who deeply loved them. And because of a covenant that he made, hinged on Abraham's faith, Jacob as well, he was going to maintain truthfully what he'd promised to do. Pretty cool. Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Benahadab, the son, reigned in his place. And Joash, this is two different spellings of the same man, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Benadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Three times, notice this, Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. He smashed those arrows down thrice. Elisha was disturbed that he stopped at three, but he was faithful to say, nevertheless, your victory will be three. What happens if at three you stopped, but God's saying, but you did it, and you've seen me faithful to me accomplishing it. Is there any problem with you asking again? Well, Elisha's not there, but Jesus is, and he's greater than Elisha. So you complete your three, you would have, oh, pff, I'm probably going to get nuisance now for that. We'll change that. Say, what I heard before is the promise of God in my life. Therefore, I will do what I know God is receptive with regard to his faithfulness. He hears me. He bends low his ear. And what I say to him in humility and also in faith and belief, he will not turn me away from. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to have encouragement in. With that, concluding in a great promise, turn to 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. And this is your word. This is the word that you heard. This is the word that God has said with regard to the promise that you know is also his advice to you. What do I do? What did he promise you? You do what it is he promised you. That is his advice. Congress is to advise and consent. They're at war with each other. They don't even know that. Greater than Congress is the Lord Jesus and the word that he's given to us. And therefore, the promise that he gives to us is the advice that he wants us to follow. You must follow the advice that he gives concerning the promise that you know. And this is what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God, some of the promises, well, just one, a couple specifically. Well, that was in my past. It says, all of the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. You have an anointing. What are you going to do with it?
You have his promise. How do you follow his advice with regard to it? What is it about the second batch of arrows that you would be saying to yourself is not necessary to clutch again and be more, if you would, enthusiastic about smashing those things for the victory? I'm not a dramatic guy, though I was in drama and I did well in drama. I had a character to play, but he was only a character in the play. I played him, but it was only a play. Now I'm different. I'm not simply a character. I am one that the Lord would say, as he has to you as well, established in him. And I have an anointing that I am to both be able to lead by example and say to you as well, even greater is yours perhaps with regard to the promise and the advice. Sometimes we spend far too long asking other people's advice, but I do have my ears open to as well the voice that says, by the Lord, this is the direction that you're walking. Walk in it. This is the vision that I've seen. Perhaps it will be in agreement with what you find in the word. But I think this is just, in my opinion, cinching this up, giving some of you an opportunity to perhaps experience life because you're feeling dead. And sometimes that's the hardest thing is the fact that feelings really need to be detached from faith if they are contrary to what God has told you and what you believe and what you expect. It's just contrary. My evening sleeps have been crazy and I don't understand it because I have a pattern in my life, but lately they're crazy. And so what I chose to do in my 1.30 awakening today was, Lord, I'm going to pray. And so that's what I did. And I prayed through what I think was the howling of the wind and the splattering of the rain. And inside I wanted to just fall asleep but that wasn't an allowance. So when I did business with the Lord, and it wouldn't be necessarily impressive to you, I just wanted to press in. I just wanted to make any kind of acknowledgement to him that said, Lord, I'm willing to do business with you. So I thought of people. I thought of situations. I thought about the church, my need to be here early, to have things with regard to the church ready. And I said, that'll do. That's sufficient. Went back to sleep for at least a couple of hours because I still want the promises that I believe God has made to me. And if I didn't get it right in the first three sets of arrows, what I do want to say is I'm not stopping. There's still God's arrows. He still had his hand on the bow that I drew. Give me another set of those arrows. Whack, whack, whack. Cause I want to have less of the enemy influencing my life, more of God having complete victory in my life. Give me those arrows. And you can throw in a whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. My NRA fans would probably be throwing a nine mil too. <laughs> <laughs>